reading in Matthew chapter 6 uh, and we'll probably be starting around verse 25 but the last time we finished up we talked about storing our treasures in heaven and not on earth we talked about what earthly wealth does for us and, and, and the, the, the adverse effect it can have in our lives it's all very nice um, having plenty and it's not very nice having not enough but you know the Bible says that that uh, David prayed it to the Lord he says give me enough that I might not have to steal to feed my children that your name might be glorified and honoured and that, that's a kind of paraphrase of it but that's kind of what he meant and I suppose this next section deals with the result of sometimes trusting too much in materialism you know we all sit there and we see it I see it week after week um, I tend not to get into certain shops on a Saturday or a Friday because they're queued out with people buying lottery tickets you know and all I want is a paper um, and, and the thing is I think you know Lord what is, it, what is it about money that has such a draw on people that has such an effect on them that they must have more I suppose if, if I canvassed you in here and I gave you all a blank sheet of paper and asked you to anonymously tell me if you would like a million pounds, I'm sure I would get many yeses. And, uh, but if I asked you, would you like a million pounds or would you like your health back? I wonder what you would ask for. If I offered you a million pounds or eternal life, I wonder what you would answer. Many people would still answer, I'll take the million pounds because I'm not sure about eternal life. But you know, the, the results of materialism and fame brings their own problems. I mean, I look, at, I look at people like David Beckham who has millions of pounds, hundreds of millions of pounds, but he has to live in a fortress. He's got security cameras and razor wire around the walls. His children have got bodyguards to take them to school. I mean, that's the result of money because people will end up stealing, if they can't steal your money they'll steal what you have to exchange for your money and the life of your children is far more important than the money and that's what Jesus said, you know all it does is bring worry if you're sitting in the bank with 210 million pounds all you're worried about is somebody sneaking in and taking a bit am I not getting enough interest on it you know, I only got 21 million pounds in interest last year, that's not enough you know, it's and so that's, that's what Jesus was saying about material wealth. Yes, there's nothing wrong with material wealth, but if you're going to treat it in the wrong fashion, then you're going to store up your treasure here on earth because it's going to be taken off you. Nobody will spend their lives making money, yes, but there isn't one halfpenny goes with us into the kingdom of God. Not one. The currency of the kingdom of God is a giving heart. The courtesy, the, the currency of the kingdom of God is, is the love that we show for each other, the treasure that we store in heaven. <clears throat> you know, it talks about it in Revelation when we, when we appear before the Lord and we bring our works before Him because we'll not be judged for our sin. Our sin is forgiven. God's not looking at your sin when you come before the throne of God. You come before the beam of seat. You come before that place where the rewards are handed out, and you bring all your things working you say here's what I've got Lord here's what I did with my life and the precious fire of God the holy fire of God will breathe on it and hopefully when all the wood and the stubble and the hay is burnt away there will be some gold left there will be something that God says ah that was a good bit 
You may have thought, oh, the rest of that was good, but that was a good bit. That's where your heavenly treasure comes in. The rest of it, the worldly possessions, we get ourselves all screwed up and worried. And there's nobody gets more screwed up and worried than me, believe me. I mean, I know that worry works, because everything I worry about never happens. You know, it's... But Jesus said at verse 25 here as we start, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Now this is a follow on from putting your treasure on earth or your treasure in heaven. People spend their lives and, 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 and ruin their health on trying to get which is just temporal, which is going to pass away with them. The follow on of course is that money brings worries. And, and that's the end of it. If you've got nothing, there's nothing to worry about. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life or some translations say an inch to your height or, or a hair on your head or whatever? But he talks about the birds of the air. I mean... The birds of the air. If I'm repeating myself in some of these situations, then I'm repeating myself because sometimes reputation gets it into our heads and into our hearts a wee bit better. If we had one particularly cold night here in, in Scotland, and the temperature, as it did a few years ago, dropped below kind of minus 10 centigrade. If that continued for about 8 or 9 hours, we would probably lose something around 40,000 small birds. They would just die in the trees. They would be frozen to the branches. In fact, a number of years ago, <coughs> as most of you know, I'm a bird watcher, but it was a number of years ago, we actually found a pigeon frozen to the branch of a tree. It was just sitting there trying to keep itself warm, and it just literally was frozen to death. And, and that's, you know... And Jesus says, if you're Father in heaven, and remember, this is the words of God. This is Jesus speaking to you down through the ages. If your Father in heaven looks after the birds of the air, how much more will he look after you? <coughs> Excuse me. The birds don't worry. I mean, I said this before, they don't, they don't have psychotherapists, the birds. They don't kind of queue up in the fence waiting to jump into the greenhouse to see Mr. Rat or Mr. Owl who's going to give them a wee pep talk or a wee boost. But neither do they sit there on the fence with their mouth wide open hoping that God will feed them. They work. They have to go about and do what they have to do to get what they need. It's all there if we'll just put the effort in. But they don't overdo it. You don't find birds kind of eating with their eating with their beak and then kind of shoveling it in with their, with their wings so that nobody else can get it. There tends to be a share, although there's sometimes a bit of squabble about it, but these are the birds of the air. These are, these are tiny wee things. And how, God, how good is it that God has made these things? You know, a small blue tit or something like that probably weighs about two or three grams. Grams. And yet it can survive minus ten at night you put Grace out in the night in minus 10 even with clothes on and she would probably die and yet she's probably a thousand times heavier than a bird and yet God has given that bird that ability to stay alive through that period 
So the birds don't worry. There's no psychotherapist for them. And you know, from our point of view, I want to encourage you this morning. If you are a worrier, if you're like me and you're a worrier, you're the pinnacle of God's creation. God has made you, and you are the only thing in all creation that God has said, I will make man in my own image. You are there at the top. The biggest planet in the universe doesn't compare to you as far as God's concerned. Meeting Jupiter or Saturn, which is a million times bigger than our sun, doesn't make any difference to God. You are the pinnacle of his creation. I pray regularly to God. I say, Lord, can you teach me how not to worry? And the word that always comes back is, trust in me. And I say, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) But that's the truth of it. I mean, and that's the simplicity of it. I want some complicated answer about, you know, read your Bible 19 times a day and watch the God Channel or whatever. But, you know, if I got into that situation, I would be no better than, than, than the... Than the Roman Catholic Church, where they want you to do five hour fathers and three Hail Marys and all the rest of it, and don't worry about it. Your sins are forgiven. I know my sins are forgiven. In some measure, I look at it from the point of view that worry, in some measure, is the opposite of faith. It's a lack of trust. And I defy anybody to tell me that they don't worry at times. It just seems to be part of us. And yet, this is the opposite that Jesus is trying to tell us. That you don't need to worry. Yeah. You think, well, are we in sin because we're worrying? And I'm going to tell you, no, you're not. Because the worry that's spoken about here, and there's another passage further on in the New Testament that says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, seek God through Christ Jesus. Another paraphrase. And the words that are used there and here are two words which describe total overwhelming worry or anxiety. Something that is so overcoming in your life that it, that it prevents you from functioning. You become unlivable. You've got this thing in your mind, you've got this thing in your heart, and it's worrying you to, to the extent that you just cannot put it down, and it's affecting every area of your life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When, when things go wrong for us, we start to worry about them. We take them to the Lord. And although they may be problems, and big problems, and we all sometimes, at some point in our life, have big problems, what he's asking for is that trust. Just trust. You might, it might be a worry to you, but don't let it overcome your life. Don't let it be something that puts you in a place where you're of no use to yourself, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're, you've eliminated yourself from the plan, the wonderful plan that God has for your life. If we could make a... I was going to say, if we could make a hair grow be worrying. But the worrying that I do, I shouldn't be bald, you know, let's say... But you can't add an hour to your life. You don't know what your lifespan is, but God knows it. When you get to my age, if you start worrying about when you're going to die, it's silly. Because the youngest person in the fellowship could die before me. God forbid that, but, but you know, do you understand what I mean? Our life is not in our own hands. We've already surrendered our life to God. God knows 
the very hour that we will pass from this earth. There's no point in worrying about it. There's no point in distrusting him about it because he knows it down to the second when we'll take that last breath. When we step over that threshold and we're into heaven and we see the Lord face to face and Jesus will say, now what were you worried about? What concerns you? So remember that that the words that are used there is this deep-rooted anxiety which completely overpowers. And why worry at verse 28 about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. So do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly fathers knows that you need them. Basically he's saying don't get caught up in materialism. And we see it all today. You know we're talking about the clothes that you wear. It was even the same in the, in the time of Jesus. There was designer clothes believe it or not there was designer you know, you could get a special coat made with all the embroidery and the stuff and whatever. And, or you could get a special talent, you know, if you're a God-fearing Jew. And, and it would be lovely embroidered round the bottom along with your, your fringes and your hinges and all the rest of it. And we have the same today. You know, you can see somebody walking down the street and say, oh, that's, a, that's an expensive suit. That's, that's a real sharp tie or that's a nice shirt. You wouldn't say that about me, unfortunately. But uh, you can see my colour code. And, you know, <laughs> just the first jersey that fits. <laughs> so don't get caught up in materialism. You can't take it with you, as we've already seen. And yet, people spend their lives labouring after it. Labouring, as the Bible talks about, for food that perishes. And they can't take it with them. I told you the story about the wills. You know, these people, the wills and the Scotsman and all the rest of it, Lord so-and-so or Sir so-and-so left £10 million. No, he didn't. He could have taken off them. Nobody who's made £10 million leaves it lying around. He's gone to wherever he's gone, whether it's heaven or hell, but he's not taking his £10 million with him, that's for sure. And Jesus sums this up at the end of this passage, before he goes on. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm always, the, the image that God always gives me, seeking first the kingdom of God, is, is making my way across a lake in a boat. I'm concentrating on where I'm going. I'm driving this boat. But I need things to go properly for the boat to go properly but God doesn't allow me just to cut a hole through the water and then the boat sinks the water comes in behind me he adds to it that which I need to make that forward motion do you understand what I mean and that's the same with you keep your eyes fixed on the future keep your eyes fixed on what's ahead of you you know Jesus said don't, go, don't put your hand to the plough and look back because all you'll do is pull the plough off course. Paul himself said it as well. Forget that which is behind you. And that might not be so very easy at times. But forget that which is behind you. And push on towards the goal. Which is in Christ Jesus. 
We can't do anything about the mistakes of the past. They're done with. They're already committed. All we can do is learn from them. We can learn from the past, live in the present and hope for the future. And that's the way forward for it. That's what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, when he asks us to, you know, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the good things of God. The Bible again says, never cease from doing good. And in some measure that, I suppose, sums up what Jesus is trying to say. Do good. And if you're doing good, you'll store up treasures in heaven. If you're doing good, you're seeking the kingdom of God first. And you're not seeking after materialism. Therefore, do not worry at verse 34 about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough problems of its own or enough trouble of its own. Jesus knew the problems we face. The life you live day after day. And sometimes it can be quite harrowing. You seem to think that, you know, there was an old saying my mother used to say, it never comes in ones, it comes in threes, you know. It's, uh, and, my, and my grandpa used to say, if it's no fleas, it's midges, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, and in some measure, sometimes life feels like that, you know. It just seems to be one fire fight to the next, you know. You've just put out one blaze and another one starts up in another corner and you think, Lord, what is going on here? Where are we? But, you know, I go back to this point again. In some measure, we don't even know if we're going to live out this day. God willing, we are. And we're going to serve him for a lot longer than we, than we hope for. But if this were our last day, how would you spend it? If you knew that by six o'clock tonight you would be in eternity with Jesus Christ, how would you spend the rest of your day? Who would you speak to? What things would you put right that were wrong? That's the way you've got to look at life because life is like that. Suddenly, you take one breath and you don't take the next and we're in eternity. And I don't, I don't mean to be discouraging with this. That's, that's life. That's the way it is. We step over that threshold. So we learn to live, learn from the past, plan for the future, live for the day. There's no point in worrying about tomorrow. Because it might never come. Jesus might come back today. In fact, for your benefit, he might come before I finish speaking. Then you'll no need to listen to the rest of this. But it's true. But now we move on slightly here to chapter 7 because you've got to remember here that we're in a situation where although these things were written down by Matthew, it was men who put in the chapter breaks and the the verse numbers and stuff for, a, for an easy reference but this was all a continuous flow from the mouth from the heart of Jesus Christ the very heart of God being explained to these people up on that mountainside no wonder they didn't want to go home this is something they'd never heard before this was not like the Pharisees and the rabbis who always taught you know you can't do this and you can't do that and you must do this and you must do that and the people are suddenly offered this freedom you know, allow the Spirit of God to move in your life and things will be different. <clears throat> so in chapter 7 there's a slight change of tack. It's still about how we look at ourselves. And it's kind of the internal stuff, the prayer, the fasting, the materialism that we've already looked at. 
But now there's more about a comparison and how we deal with other people. And after he talks about seeking first the kingdom of God, and this is one of these passages that, that is, can be quite difficult for all of us. He says at the start of chapter 7, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Remember back in Matthew 5, Jesus said to the people, he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. In other words, it mustn't be a self-righteousness. It mustn't be a righteousness based upon how good you think you are and how bad you think somebody else is. We compare ourselves with each other. That's an, an unfortunate habit that we have. Even as Christians, we compare ourselves with each other. We think, well, I'm better than him. I wish I was like him. You know, and that's not how we should be. I always remember when I was a young Christian, and I was probably quite um, ungracious, might be the word for it. Um, I would just sort of bash in and tell people things, and, and it maybe wasn't the best plan to do it. And the Lord showed me, and it's because I've always liked Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem and all the rest of it. The Lord showed me the verse out in Nehemiah where he had asked, the, Nehemiah had said to the people, we want to build the wall, everybody build the wall in front of their own house. The bit in front of your own house, you build that bit, and the guy next to you will build that bit, and before we know it we'll have the wall built. And even for the time of Zerubbabel and Ezra, for a hundred years, although the temple had been partially completed, the wall had never been rebuilt. And under the guidance of Nehemiah, under the, the, the unction of the Holy Spirit in his life, 51 days and they had built the wall. 51 days and yet for a hundred years it had lain a, a wreck because the people just couldn't come together. They couldn't agree on what they were going to do. And Nehemiah came and said, whatever's in front of you, build it. And that's all you need to do. And that's what God showed me. He says, don't look to your left. And here's this poor guy. He can't put one brick on top of another without it falling down. And you say to yourself, well, I'm better than him. And you look to your right. And here's this guy who's twice the height that you've got. And you're at his wall. And you can't even see the joins. You think, oh, I wish I could build him. But that's not what God's asking you to do. Don't be a judge to these people. Because whether you put them on a pedestal or whether you disdain them, you're being a judge on them. You're criticising them in some measure. I don't like him because he's better than me. And I don't like him because he's worse than me. And that's not the way it should be. God said to me, you build your bit of the wall. And I'll inspire the others to build their bit of the wall. Just keep your eyes front. Forget which is behind you. Forget which is the side. Be straight-minded. Go for it. And that's all I've done. And you're the result. You're here because God gave me that word to build the wall and you are the wall. You are the bit of the wall that was not made with hands. That was built by the love of Jesus. The Pharisees thought they were more righteous <clears throat> than others because they judged others. He's not doing it as well as I'm doing it. They're not doing it as well as, as I thought they would do it. And Jesus rebukes that thought process. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And that's a warning. That as we judge, we bring judgment on ourselves. Now, please don't get me wrong. This is not a judgment in the sense of, of uh, 
a judicial review, if we want to call it that. The word there really means criticism. That's what it really talks about. Don't criticise others, because when you do that, you make yourself out to be better than them, and you become just as self-righteous as the Pharisees were. Everybody has their faults. We all have our problems. We need to find ways to bear with each other and not to be the critical spirit. Among Christian and non-Christian, this verse is always quoted. You'll find a, you'll even find non-Christians when you when you say something about Jesus or something about their lifestyle, they say, oh, "You're judging me," and they they say that in the hope that it means that there's a freedom there. That they're, although we're criticising, we're maybe judging what they do, we're not judging who they are. They think it maybe means a freedom and they should be left to do what they want. Although we have a universal love for people and God asks us to do that, we mustn't ever lack the discernment that we just have that universal acceptance of lifestyle and, and all the other things that go with it. We make that conscious decision that to have that agape love for people. But we mustn't ever throw the baby with the bathwater. We can't endorse people's lifestyles just because they say us, oh well, if you say anything about my lifestyle, you're judging me. No. We need to put it in such a way as we're trying to help them. And the help is, of course, Jesus in their life. Next week we'll look at some of the fruit... You know, as this, as this chapter continues. But it, when we make the judgments, and we make judgments every day, it calls for discernment. It calls for... It, we, we can't just give a carte blanche to everything. And that's, that's what's happened in the church today. The church has, has just given the world carte blanche. Oh, you can have gay ministers. Of course you can. Oh, you can have gay marriage. Of course you can. We're all one. We're all Chokes, Tamsons, Bairns. No, we're not. We're all God's creation. But only those who are washed in the blood and born of the Spirit, only those, Jesus gave the right to be sons of the living God. So when people say they're sons of God, when they're living lives that are not right, then you say to them, look, there's something wrong here. Do you really think that that's what God would have you do? So we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't nitpick but we need to also be careful that we don't allow just any old behaviour to be acceptable. We're called to an unconditional love, but we can love people without condoning their behaviour. I love my son, I love him dearly, but I don't condone his behaviour where he is at the present time, but I love him. There are many people who I love, who are in my extended family or in my group of friends, but I don't condone their lifestyles. But I love them as friends. So while that statement, do not judge lest you be judged, allows us to make that, that to take that look at somebody's life it also must mean that we have to do it in the right manner we have to do it with the right heart it has to be done with a heart of love remember the woman who was caught in adultery 
she was dragged before Jesus. And the, the probability is that she was dragged before Jesus naked because she was caught in the act of adultery. And my, my, my obvious question always when I think about this story is where was the man? You can't commit adultery on your own. So where was the guy? But they picked on the woman because in those days and even today women are treated as second class citizens. But they threw her before Jesus and said the law says... The law says she should be stoned. She was caught in the act of adultery. What do you say? And Jesus, although he wanted to criticise their, their, or judge their behaviour, he did it in such a fashion that it became acceptable to them. He stood up and he looked at them and he said, if any of you guys is without any sin in their life, then pick up the stone and stone her. And he bent down again and he started to write on the ground. And nobody knows what he wrote. I'm desperate to ask the question. But I think it might have been all these guys that were there. Jesus had that word of knowledge and he was writing, A.B., 6th of January, A.D. 4, the Hilton Hotel. <laughs> Who were you with, A.B.? Oh, I'm away home. Here, do you want my stone? But that's, you know, that's the example how Jesus loved them but would never condone their behaviour that's the pharisaical attitude that's the critical spirit that, that, that destroys us another example is when the woman came and uh, washed Jesus' feet with the oil and the disciples criticised her ah, what are you doing, what a waste I said, oh, that's worth a year's wages, that jar of oil. And you've poured it all over this guy. And Jesus said, she's done a good thing. Don't rebuke her. She's done a good thing. She has recognised the anointing that I needed before I died. And you guys need to get on board with that. So he rebuked his own disciples in that matter. And they accepted it. Because they realised that they were wrong in what they'd said. We break this edict when we don't think enough, when we don't, as my dad used to say, put your gear in brain before you let the clutch out in your mouth, you know. When we don't think first or prayerfully approach things before we say things. We break this edict that Jesus is trying to put forward here about judging people when we think the worst of others before we think the better of them. I don't know what it is. I mean, I mean, I've even the same at times. I'll always think the worst of people. I try not to, but sometimes it's hard. We only speak of people's faults. We never credit them with anything good, you know. Especially behind their back, isn't it? It's great. We get involved in one of the gossipy conversations and then half an hour after you think, gosh, I should never get involved in that. We need to be a people that, that think before we act. And the worst of all is we judge someone's life by its absolute worst moments. Somebody may have served the Lord for 30 years and been a great servant and then they fell into sin and they're judged by that one fall rather than the 30 years that they've spent serving the Lord. And it's hard not to do it 
But it's something that Jesus says we need to learn to do it. In these cases we judge without knowing the full facts. We judge forgetting that we will suffer the same lack of mercy. If we're going to be critical of people for the wrong reasons, if we're going to be nitpickers, then we're going to end up people nitpicking at us. And then the whole thing falls to pieces. Relationships are destroyed. Think the best of each other. Look for the good things in people. There may not be very many, and there might not only be a few, but that's what we've got to push up and get rid of the dross. And it says here, with the measure you use, so it will be measured to you. Excuse me while I have a drink. Lovely water here. Now the Jews knew what Jesus was talking about here with the measures. Because they accepted, and the rabbis even taught it at that time, that God gives two measures. He measures in mercy and he measures in justice. And he'll give you a measure of justice and a measure of mercy. And Jesus says, as you deal with others, what do you want? Do you want mercy or do you want justice? Because we're all sinners. We want mercy. We want people to be merciful to us when we fall and we get it wrong and we're ashamed and we're frightened to come back into fellowship because people will criticise us and condemn us. That's justice. We deserve it. I mean, don't get me wrong. When we fall and we get it wrong, we deserve justice. But we need mercy. And that's the difference. The world will always give you justice. The guys that I used to minister amongst in the jails, murderers, child molesters, rapists, terrible people, people that had done such things. I used to pray to the Lord, Lord, when I go tonight and somebody speaks to me, if they tell me what they've done, don't let it show in my face. And yet God has forgiven them. The world won't. And probably quite rightly so. They'll serve their term. It may be a life. It may be 30 years. They'll serve their term. But God will forgive their sin. That's who God is. That's the God of the Bible. He's not some great ogre that wants to batter you over the head with a rolling pin. The bigger the sin, the bigger the hammer. So the Jews knew what Jesus was talking about with the measure that you use so it will be measured to you. And now Jesus uses this humorous example. He kind of lifts the, the, uh, the mood, if you want to call it that. People are pensive at this point in time, sitting saying, gosh, never heard anything like this before. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And I can hear them all bursting out laughing. You, know, you can maybe get a speck in your eye, but you're not going to get a plank in your eye. You know, so... Uh, Jesus has cracked a joke, you know, he's maybe got a sense of humour here, you know. It's got, we always think of Jesus as being sort of a bit dour, and, but I'm sure he had a tremendous sense of humour. I always, you know, it's just as a side, I always have a picture, having been to the Sea of Galilee, how hot it is over there, even in the early spring, I've always got this picture of Jesus starting to pull off his clothes and saying, right guy, last thing's a, an agent, you know. <laughs> As they just run and dive into the Sea of Galilee to cool off, you know, I can just almost picture that. 
But why do you look at the speck of dust in your, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If we've got somebody who has committed the same sin that we've committed, they've always done it worse. We're always better. We're always justified. With self-justification, self-deception, it's the best kind of deception that keeps you quite warm at night. There may be a speck, but not a plank in your eye. And these people knew what Jesus was talking about because... Out there, you know, the wind can come up, come down for the hills and the, uh, the Galilean hills. And it suddenly just blows across the, 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 the dry ground. And the dust comes up and you get bits and pieces in your eyes and all the rest of it. And, and people probably said, you know, oh, I feel as if I've got a plank in my eye. You know, it, it may well have been a colloquialism. You know, not just that I've got dust in my eye, I feel as if I've got a plank in my eye. The thing is, and, and the thing that I want to make the point here is that planks are easy to find. Specks are difficult to find. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, you, you search diligently for the speck in your brother's eye, but you fail to see that your brother's laughing at you because you've got this big plank in your own eye. And it's something that we need to be careful of. That we're not constantly looking for a way to criticise. When we're looking for the specks in people's eyes, we're, we're actually digging the dirt, if you want to call it that. We're looking for ways to, to find fault with them. We're looking for ways to justify ourselves and, and to put them down. Jesus was very gentle with people, as we saw with the, with the woman caught in adultery and with the guys with, when, when the, maid, the woman was washing his feet with oil. And yet, he calls people's hypocrites. The people who look at the small things in other people's lives and criticise them and yet ignore the mountains in their own. That's not the way it should be. Self-analysis. Get before God, you know. When you get before God and, you say, and God says, you know, you're a liar. Yes, Lord, I'm a liar. You, you, you're a thief. I say, yes, Lord, I'm a thief. You're a sinner. Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. When, when you go to that stage, that's when you know who you are. That's when you realise who you are. You know, if I drew a graph for you this morning and a comparison with everybody in here as to how good you were, we would have all these wee graphs and maybe one would be slightly bigger than the other and, and maybe some slightly smaller than the other. In fact, it always reminds me of the story of the dream with the, when, when I went to heaven and, and I got in the gates and there's this great big long corridor and they had all these clocks up in the wall but they only ever had one hand. And some of them were going around quite fast and some of them were going around quite slow. And there was millions of them. And I said to the angel, I says, so, what's the problem with the clocks? He says, what do you mean? I says, well, I've only got one hand. Oh, he says, they're no clocks. He says, what are they? He says, they're sinometers. I said, they're what? Sinometers. He says, says there's, there, there's, there's Brian's up there. It's going quite slow. And there's Alex. It's going quite fast. I, I says, well... So I searched the whole place, couldn't find mine. So I come back to the angel and I said, uh, I says, I'm, I'm really feeling quite good about this. He says, how is it? I says, well, I don't have one. He says, no, yours is in the Lord's office. He's using it as a fan.
when we realise what we have been forgiven everything else goes into perspective the ducks go into a row and these things are no easy what Jesus was telling us it's totally opposite to what human nature is and yet the nature that should be in us that spiritual nature that God has planted there should be grown in us on a daily basis and then at the end he finishes off by saying do not give dogs what is sacred do not throw your perils to pigs if they do they will trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces in other words don't be wrongly judgmental but don't throw out discernment altogether don't give to the dogs what is sacred dogs and pigs people who are hostile to the gospel people who are hostile to the word that you would bring them that would help them along their way there are some people who hear the gospel and every time they hear it they become hostile to it and Jesus is saying in the broad term don't tell them again shake the dust off your feet and walk away you've told them once they're no fertile the ground isn't take, take it away and pray for them people who are ready to receive the gospel are the people to whom we should be spending our time on. The people who are prepared to, to change their lives and to be teachable are the people we should be spending our time on. If people just put up their hands and say, don't you bother coming near me. I don't want your gospel. I don't want to hear how bad my life is. Even Christians, when you say to them, brother, do you think no doing that? Once you've told them once, don't go back because you're just wasting your time. Take it to prayer and allow God to soften their hearts so that when the time is right, the seed will be planted on good soil. Fertile ground. And then he says, Ask and it will be given to you, and seek and you will find, and knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. And you know, finishing off with the sort of dogs and pigs there, and, and the need for prayer, this is exactly what Jesus is going back into here. He's going back into the need for prayer. When we ask God, that's what we call prayer. It might be a conversation we're having with God, but it's called prayer. And what he's asking for here is a progression. We're asking, we're seeking, and we're knocking. Simple requests. Just ask. Those who ask are giving. Receiving the reward. Receiving is the reward of asking. If you need something from God, and it's a need, ask him, and he'll give you. But this doesn't mean to say that everything that you want, you'll get. Neither does it mean that you can just walk up to God and say, God, I need a new motor. And that's an end to it. When Jesus was talking here, the words he was using were, were fervent. When you ask, be fervent in what you ask for. God knows what you need, but he wants to hear it from your heart. You don't just go up and say, <clears throat> right, Lord, I need two loaves and five fish or whatever. He wants to hear that fervency in prayer. And that's what the asking is. A fervency that comes with the Spirit of God within you. The Spirit of God that brings the very will of the Father into your heart that you might pray it. I want to be able to approach this person. I want them to receive what I've got to say to them. Lord, show me the problems in my own life before I go and try and show the problems to somebody else. 
Help me to be open, to admit to the wrongs that are in me before I try to right the wrongs that are in somebody else or help them to right the wrongs. Seeking and finding. <clears throat> Those who seek God, find them. You, you are a, 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 a standing testament to it. You sought God, you asked him, and he found you. Knocking it will be opened unto you. Opening is the reward of knocking. Sometimes we feel there are closed doors. Sometimes we feel we've got to kind of bang in the door a bit. Lord, are you listening? God, where are you? But be persistent. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. How many times did David and the Psalms say, How long, O Lord? How long before you come and rescue me? That's knocking. That's asking. That's seeking. God knows the timing exactly. <clears throat> and he will <coughs> excuse me, answer in times. And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, you know, somebody will learn in difficulties. Someone who hasn't, hasn't quite got the wits to do it, they could be lost in the first two. They could have a problem seeking. They could have a problem asking. Although God listens to us all. But the third one... I could take anybody and say, I want you to stand at that door and I want you to knock it until somebody opens it. It doesn't take a great deal of wit. It doesn't take an intellect. It just takes faith and perseverance. Just stand at the door and knock until somebody opens it. And that in some measure sums up the Christian life. Stand at the door and knock, although it may seem close to you. Sometimes we stand at the wall and knock and we're being a bit silly about it. We want things to come into our lives that God has put a wall between them and us. But we want to knock down the wall. Lord, I want what's behind this wall. When really we should be knocking the door and saying, Lord, I want what's behind this door because I know that it's of you. So we sense that the door is closed and as I say in the first two we might need some form of uh, uh, words or some form of intellect to do it but the third one when we knock all you have to do is knock. Be persistent in your prayer. That's what God's looking for. Consistency and persistency. Pray for it. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if you ask for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Sometimes we ask for things that are not right, but God makes them right. When your son asks for a loaf, would you give him a stone? I explained this before about the bread looking like, like a stone. You know, and you're actually asking your father, give him this, give him the stone. No, no, what he needs is the bread. No, but give him this, but you know, I, I'm his father, you know, I'll give him the stone. No, 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 I'll give him the bread. Ask for a fish and you want to give him a snake. We don't know sometimes what's good for us. And we have to trust God that what, what might seem good for us in the short term is not good for us in the long term. Then you look at this negatively, Jesus puts it positively when he says, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, you're first. This is proactive. 
You do unto others as you would have them do to you. Whenever you're dealing with people, think about it and say to yourself, Now, if the roles were reversed here, how would I expect to be treated? Even although I might be wrong, how would I expect to be treated? Would I expect to be encouraged, lifted up, prayed for, forgiven, restored? Or would I expect people to say, oh, phew, Some Christian you. What kind of person are you? When Jesus was 20 years of age, before his ministry started, there was a rabbi, Hillel, who was in Jerusalem. And he was challenged, apparently by a Gentile, to explain the law in the time that he could stand in one leg. Imagine that a rabbi standing there and a guy standing on one leg. For a distance it must have looked quite a sight, you know. But he says, for as long as I can stand in this leg, that's the length of time you've got to explain the law to me. And in some measure that's what people do to us with the gospel. I've got a couple of minutes, what do you want to talk about, you know. I've got to go. I can't stand here all day talking about these, you know. And this guy summed it up. And he said, this is is the law, this is what Hillel gave him as an answer. Whatever you consider to be hateful, don't do it to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is just commentaries. Go and learn it. Whatever you consider to be hateful, do not do it to others. Jesus, that's a negative way of looking at it. Jesus put it positively. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As I studied this, I thought, this is impossible. How can I do this, Lord? All the mistakes and trips and problems that I've had over my Christian life. And he encouraged me by saying, you know, he says, you've only had the trips and the mistakes and the problems because you are a Christian. Remember what you were before you were a Christian. I just told people to go away, rather impolitely. And that was it. But you know, he told me, Oh, I said to him, Lord, this is impossible. How can we do this? And he said, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Just because it's not doesn't seem possible to a man's eyes. Everything is possible to God. We'll never get to the perfection state this side of eternity. But that should be the target. The target that we aim for should always be too high for us to achieve. Because if we could achieve the targets... Who would we not need? We wouldn't need Jesus. And that's where, don't despair. Never cease from doing good. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you are a God eternal. The Lord, you know every sinful act that we've ever committed. You know our deepest, darkest secrets, Lord. And yet you still love us. And how wonderful is that, Lord? When we realise that, help us to use that as we deal with each other, Lord. As we deal with people in the world who in some measure are enemies, help us to turn them into friends, Lord. As we deal with people in the church, help us to be a people that honour you in all things, Lord. Father, I just thank you for all who are here this morning. I pray that you would encourage their hearts, Lord, and bless them this day. For I do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like